Over the past months, my family and I had become more and more frustrated with our home internet service. I think a lot of people have had this experience during COVID as we've come to rely on the internet more and more for just for daily life. Uh, but our, our service was getting more and more expensive and it was, it was almost as though at the same time it was getting less and less reliable. Uh, so it would drop at very inopportune times. Ethan would be trying to do an online test or something. We would lose internet access. I'd be in a meeting and out of the blue, it would just drop. So last week, I finally got around to calling a different company and asking them to come and install their internet service for our home. Now, one of the draws of this other company is that they use fiber optics or fiber optic cable for their installations. I have no idea what that means. I truly, it's supposed to be better. I trust, but I have no idea what that means, but it sounds cool. Fiber optics, fiber optics, great. Now, as someone who's not technologically savvy, I questioned if we would be able to tell any difference. Well, Friday, Late afternoon, for the first time, we were using this new connection. And let me just tell you, oh yes, there's a difference. <laughs> the speed, the ease of connection, the uh, consistent connectivity was just a new experience that we hadn't had in so long. It was a, a drastic, dramatic change. But at the same time, visually, so like what you could notice if you were to walk into our home through what you take in in your eyes, very little has changed. There's still a cable coming out of the wall and plugging into a modem. And we still access the internet the same way. And even our connection name changed minimally just by one character really so we could differentiate it from our old connection. But the effects are dramatically different. The passage in Acts that we studied last week was a sobering one because we saw Ananias and Sapphira drop dead while trying to deceive Peter and lie to the Holy Spirit. And the result of that event was that everyone who heard about it was filled with fear. And we talked about how that was the fear of the Lord, the life-preserving fear of sinning and the fear of putting oneself at odds with the holiness of God. But as with our new internet connection, you can't see the fear of the Lord. It's not something visible, but we can see the results, the impact, the effect that the fear of the Lord has on the church. And that's what Luke proceeds to show his readers. What characterizes a community that lives in the fear of the Lord. That's what Luke is going to show us today. So I'll be reading from Acts chapter 5. It's a brief passage today. Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. This is Luke's description of a community living in the fear of the Lord. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them 
even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. There are four characteristics of a community living in the fear of the Lord that I would like us to see in this passage. The first characteristic is that it is a community committed to meeting together. Okay? A community committed to meeting together. In this passage, we read that all the believers met together in Solomon's colonnade. The verbs used there in Greek indicate that it's an ongoing, consistent practice. It's interesting to note that the word all here is important because in Jewish tradition, they gathered weekly in this time period, right? They did gather on the Sabbath in synagogues or in the temple if they were in Jerusalem, but those gatherings were limited to men. And now we have this new entity, this church, this new community that is embracing everyone and men and women are being welcomed as equal members and participants. But I want to ask you a question. What were the origins of Christians meeting regularly together? Because today in 2020, we've received this tradition, right? And many of us like myself, we've grown up with it. It's something we kind of take for granted. Yeah, church gets together on Sunday. Even people who are not part of the church kind of have that general understanding that churches meet together on Sundays. Where did that come from? Because in these early chapters of Acts, we've already seen this theme that they're together, that they're meeting together. They're meeting together in homes, and they're meeting together now we see regularly in the temple courts and then at Solomon's Colonnade more specifically today. But this is what I want us to hear. There is no recorded mandate of which we are aware that told them that they needed to do this or that they had to do this. There's no command from Jesus, at least none that's recorded in Scripture, that told the church they needed to meet regularly together. There's no command from the apostles that's been recorded for us historically. So what's driving the church to meet together? I think there are two forces compelling the church. The first is the Holy Spirit. This is who's been active in and through the church from the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's the one that's been driving everything they're doing, driving their witness, driving their growth, driving their purification. It's the Holy Spirit. And secondly, it's the fear of the Lord. That's the context that Luke has given us. A community filled with the fear of the Lord is compelled to meet together. Now, the early believers, they didn't need a command. They didn't need someone to explain to them the importance of being together and worshiping together. It was obvious. It was like a no-brainer. It was natural that they would recognize this profound need. Do you often need someone to remind you to breathe? Do you have someone standing over you constantly, breathe, 
You need to breathe. If you don't breathe, you're going to die. Breathe. Suck in. <gasps> okay, exhale. Inhale. Exhale. Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. No. Why? First of all, we do it instinctively. Secondly, we know that we need to breathe to sustain our lives. And in a similar way, the early believers understood that for their spiritual health and even their spiritual survival, they had to be together. They needed one another. And they needed the presence of the body. They needed to worship together with the body. They needed to be together with their brothers and sisters for their own spiritual health. Now, I want to invite us into a time of self-assessment. And it might get a little uncomfortable. And let me make clear here that this is a self-assessment. It's always more fun to assess others. But right now, I'm asking you to assess yourself. To see if we have that same passion and commitment to being with the body of Christ. And if we understand that it is essential for our spiritual health and survival. Now, having put that out there, I'm also going to acknowledge two things. First of all, COVID has wreaked havoc on normality. So that's a factor that's changing things, okay? Secondly, this is a holiday weekend, so I know a number of people are out of town. But I want us to ask ourselves honestly, is meeting together one of my highest priorities? Do I understand meeting with the body of Christ as something urgent for my own spiritual health and survival and for the spiritual health and survival of others? Because it's not only about what I might gain. It's also what I have to give and what my presence means to others. A couple months ago, I read a blog post by a woman. I don't remember her name. Uh, as far as I know, she wasn't particularly famous. But she was sharing something from her own life and her own experience. She was a mother of three young children, married. And she described the practice of her family when the shutdown first started. When quarantine first started, she said that first Sunday when their church was meeting exclusively online, the whole family was up, ready, had eaten breakfast, had showered, was dressed, and were sitting down in front of the TV five minutes before the service started, just ready and waiting for it to start. And then she continued to write that as time went on, you know, they were still there at 10 o'clock when the service was about to start, but maybe they were still wearing their pajamas, you know, maybe they were still drinking that first cup of coffee to try to wake up. Um, and then as time went on a little longer, they didn't quite get up on time, but they were like, well, we, we, we know we can watch it later on. So we'll watch it this afternoon, or maybe we'll just start it you know, a little bit later so we can have an easier morning. And then she said, a little while later, they just didn't watch it at all on Sundays. And notice the word watch. Watch. The difference, watching something passively. Worship is not something we watch Worship is something that we do. It is something in which we engage. 
And then she said, they stopped watching on Sundays because they would say, well, you know, at some point during the week, we, we'll, we'll still make sure to watch it. Eventually, their church reopened, and she said that she and her husband had decided that they didn't feel comfortable, they didn't think it was wise to return to the services because of COVID. And, and she said, until God really convicted her. And she said, how did that happen? She said, I was on a Saturday night, I was out in a fairly crowded restaurant with a group of my friends, and we were enjoying a meal together and an evening together. And I heard myself telling them that my husband and I were not returning to church because we were concerned about the spread of COVID. <laughs> and she just said, I was just shocked at myself. And then she ended the blog post by saying, this is my commitment to anyone who's reading this. This is my husband and my commitment to the Lord that we will be in church every week that the church is open from now on wearing our masks. <laughs> now, I'm sharing this story in order for us to self-assess, and I want to be clear that I fully understand that there are legitimate reasons related to COVID for some of you to not return yet to our physical um, in-person services. I understand that. Some of you have other health issues that would make you extremely vulnerable. I know there are some of you who have family members that might be very vulnerable, and so you're limiting your exposure so that you can protect your family members as well. And we don't want you to put yourself at risk. But what I'm asking us to self-assess is to be honest with ourselves and to ask, am I using COVID as an excuse for not doing something that I don't really want to do anyway? but this is a convenient excuse. So uh, that's a question I'm wanting you to ask yourself. And I wanna be clear, no one is pointing fingers. I'm not judging, no one else should be judging unless we're judging ourselves. We have to ask our own self these questions. And for all of us, I, I would hope that we've realized through this pandemic that virtual is not the same as real. That's why it's called virtual. And if you doubt that, I just wanna ask you a question. When you were accompanying the services online, which of course we all did, right? Very faithfully, yes, of course. Um, how did the singing go? <laughs> Why is everyone laughing? Why is this? Because we all know it was horrible. It was horrible. Even for families that are um, committed, that are musical, it's awkward. And let's tell something else. Nothing against our wonderful sound people. I love you. I'm so grateful for you. But it never sounds good. The stream doesn't sound very good coming through the computer. It just doesn't. Um, and so uh, that's just an example. You know, it, it's, not, it's not the same as being together in person. So again, but I, I want to make sure you hear me. I am not judging those who have legitimate concerns. I'm just asking us to self-assess and make sure that we're being honest with ourselves and with the Holy Spirit, that we value the gathering of the believers. Uh, for most of my life, from the time I was in ninth grade in high school, during the time that I lived in Brazil, the highlight of my week was Monday night. Okay, this is a, this is a confession. Because I should say that it was Sunday morning, right? What happened on Monday night? Basketball. 
Monday night basketball. Every Monday night, I had an opportunity to play basketball with friends. And I looked forward to that more than I looked forward to anything else in my week. Ask my wife. Ask my wife what my highest priority each week was. Because she will be able to tell you the truth. You know what? I would move heaven and earth to be free on Monday nights. And when something intruded on Monday night, I got upset. Why do we have deacons meetings on Monday nights? Why always on Monday nights? We have seven nights of the week. Why does it have to be on Monday night? It would irritate me. It would bother me. You know what? I'd be sick. I'd go play basketball. If I wasn't literally throwing up on other people, I was going to be there. And if I had a cold, I would say, oh, well, you know, this, it's good for me to get my body moving, you know, to get my, it'll, it'll just push that cold right through my system. And so I would do everything I could to be there. Why? Because it was a priority. And God actually used that to start challenging me about priorities. Do I have that same urgency to be with the people of God. Now, you might look at me and say, well, that's easy for you to say, and it is because I have to be here, right? So, I mean, you know, I don't really have that choice. But when I'm on vacation, when I'm in the U.S., when I'm not here, I do have that choice. And I understand that draw toward laziness. I understand the draw toward, oh, it's just one week, you know, it's just one week. But the point that I want to make is, it's essential. It's essential And it's interesting that while apparently the early church did not need a command to start meeting together, it wasn't too long before they needed the exhortation to not give up meeting together. And this is a very well-known passage in Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25. The author of Hebrews, we don't know for sure who that was, but they write and they say, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encourage one another daily. Whoa, suddenly, once a week doesn't seem too bad. Encourage one another daily, even more as you see the day approaching. What is the day? The day is Christ's return. The author of Hebrews says, the principle is, are we closer to the day now than they were then, or are we farther away? We're closer. And the author of Hebrews says, the urgency to be together as believers, it should grow as the day approaches. All the more as you see the day approaching. Encourage one another daily, all the more as you see the day approaching. The last analogy I want to give you for this point is the analogy of a fire. Um, You've probably heard this before. Maybe some of you have had an opportunity to go camping. If you have, I'm sorry for you. Um, it's miserable, um, but uh, you've probably built a fire while you're camping. And a fire is made up of a number of different pieces of wood. And as the, the fire grows in heat and intensity, of course, the, the, those pieces are gradually consumed. But if you take one of those pieces of wood out of the fire... It will continue to burn for a period of time, but from the moment it leaves the fire, its process of growing cold has begun, and it will eventually go out if left on its own. And the same is is analogously true for a believer who is not consistently with the body of Christ. Um, The love of that person is going to grow cold. 
But what I want you to remember, it's not only about what happens to the stick that's taken out of the fire. Because when that stick is back in the fire, it's maybe one of many, but it is contributing its presence to the growth and the heat and the warmth of the, of the overall fire. So it's not only about what I get out of being together. And that's the way we often approach it, isn't it? Well, I don't get that much out of being at church or, you know, it's not really that meaningful to me or Pastor Nathaniel is really boring and I don't get that much out of what he preaches or I don't like the the music or whatever. But it's not only about what you get. It's about what your presence contributes in ways you are probably not even aware of to others who are there. A community that lives in the fear of the Lord is a community committed to meeting together. The second characterization of this community is that the power of God is evident in the community. A community that lives in the fear of the Lord is characterized by the power of God. Luke's description here is remarkable, and I try to imagine what that must have been like, this incredible healing campaign, so much so that their people are just trying to get a little edge of Peter's shadow to graze over somebody who was ill. And we see this incredible healing, and the text says everyone was healed. All that needed it were healed. From the surrounding towns of Jerusalem, people brought those in need and they were healed, all of them. And not only physical healings, but they were set free from demonic oppression, from demonic possession as well. Spiritually, they were freed. And it's, it's just incredible, absolutely astonishing. And this follows, remember, this follows Ananias and Sapphira. And the fear of the Lord that grows in the community, opens the path for the power of God to be displayed there. Now, when we read this description, I think a natural question that comes to our minds is, why do we not see, or at least in our context, why don't we see these same kinds of miraculous healings? Or at least, why do they seem to occur with so much less frequency? I don't know that I can fully answer that question for you, but there are two observations that I want to make. The first is that Luke here says that it's the apostles that were healing. He doesn't say anything beyond that, but he doesn't reference it as something that everyone in the church was participating in, but rather the leaders, the 12 apostles, were the ones who were at least driving this healing ministry. Secondly, let's not discount the way that the power of God does still manifest itself in our midst here at Calvary. Because it's easy to think of the flashy. I mean, it would be amazing to see these kinds of healings. I'm not denying that. I'm not saying that God doesn't still do it or can't still do it. But sometimes because we're focused on that, we forget the other miracles that are just as profound, but they may not be as flashy or impressive. We see lives transformed here. I don't want you to raise your hands right now, but I want to ask you, are you different than you used to be? Has God 
been in the process of transforming you, if that has happened, that is the power of God. That's not something you did on your own. And it's not something your spouse did for you. You did, it, the, the Holy Spirit and the power of God brings about that change. People here in our congregation have been delivered from evil spirits. They've been set free from demonic oppression. It may not be something that you see every day. It might not be something that happens in our services, but it happens. Being convicted of sin is an act of the power of God. And we see people being set free from besetting sin. We see marriages salvaged, saved, and reconciled. When from a human perspective, there was no hope. And I, I've got his permission to remind you of Nicholas' story. Nicholas, sitting way back there, one of our drummers that had served us so faithfully. You know, a few years ago, Nicholas fell into sin. And he shared this testimony here from the front, so I'm not breaking a confidence. He fell into sin and dove into that sin headfirst left his wife, left his daughter, left his family, divorced. And from a human perspective, it was done and over. I don't know how many of you remember two Easter's ago when Nicholas first shared his testimony. And he ended his testimony by saying, and today I'm dating my ex-wife. And I don't know how many of you were able to join us online back in June. We're right here. Nicholas remarried his ex-wife. And brothers and sisters, if that is not a miraculous display of the power of God, then nothing is. Then nothing is. So all I'm saying with that is not to ignore the possibility of God healing, but let's not have too narrow a perspective on how the power of God acts and moves within his church because the power of God will be evidenced in a community that fears him. The third characteristic of a community walking in the fear of the Lord is the holiness of God. Luke describes a tension and an uncertainty in those who are not believers. It's odd the way he, he lines it up. So first, he said, they meet together in Solomon's colonnade, and they were held in high esteem but by all the people. So everyone admired this community, thought very highly of them, but then the very next phrase say, but they were, they were afraid to join. But then the immediate next phrase said, Nonetheless, many more men and women were beginning to believe. So we see this odd tension of them being attracted by what they saw in the power of God. Of course, these healings are going to attract attention, and they're being attracted by that. But at the same time, there's something that's keeping them away, something that's giving them pause, something that's causing them fear. As we would say in Portuguese, they've got one foot back. They haven't fully engaged. They're not going forward yet. What is that? What's keeping them? If they think so highly of this community, why aren't they just jumping in? It's because they know about Ananias and Sapphira. And even though they may not be able to describe it or articulate it, they understood and were aware of God's holiness and his view of sin. 
and that it was a serious matter. Those on the outside of the early church became aware that there was a price to be paid in order to believe in Jesus, that this was not something that was taken lightly. They couldn't join this community, which was so attractive to them, without paying the cost. Cleansing and purity and the knowledge that holiness was going to be required of them as well. So a time for more self-assessment. Does the holiness of God characterize ourselves and our church? And if we are a witnessing community, which I trust that we are, or we are becoming more of a witnessing community, do we skip holiness when we're asking people to accept the gospel? Because holiness, is, it's uncomfortable. The apostles in Acts never skip holiness. I mean, there are times we wish they would, right? Peter talking to the Sanhedrin, you put Jesus to death. You're responsible for this. Peter preaching on, on Pentecost does the same thing to all the people. You're responsible for the death of Jesus. And, I'm, and as I've said before, I'm like, Peter, tone it down. Make it more attractive. Make them want to come to Jesus. But the apostles show us clearly that we cannot come to Jesus unless we come through repentance. And that acknowledges the holiness of God. A call to Jesus is a call to holiness. Quite frankly, in Acts, I don't see evidence for a seeker-sensitive approach to sharing Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we beat people over the head or that we're intentionally offensive but it does mean that we never avoid the question of God's holiness when we're inviting someone to consider the gospel. In our witnessing, we must address sin and repentance and the following commitment to die to self and live for Christ. And I think often people are invited to Jesus without being invited to holiness. And that's an affront to God in every way because it, it intimates that one can believe in Jesus without being changed or transformed. It doesn't have any effect on us. So we have a responsibility to present the entire gospel, God's love and his holiness, his gift, but also its cost. I don't know if you've ever been offered a loan by your bank. Banks are so nice. They're so generous. You know, you're on your app, or you're on the website and you're working in your account and you know, or you get an email or you get a text. They're so personal. You got these texts. Do you want money in your account right now? Well, yes, I do. Of course I want money in my account right now. You can have X amount just right now, you know, get online, get on your app and you can request it. You don't have to worry about paying for 60 days. That sounds so wonderful, doesn't it? And uh, it's such a wonderful offer. It's like inviting people to the gospel by just talking, only talking about God's love and God's forgiveness. It's wonderful, and it's true, but it's only part of the story. And I think, you know, the banks, they go to quite an effort to make sure that you could have known the whole truth, but at the same time hide it. So who wants to read the 10 pages of really tiny print, you know, about the fact that you're going to pay three times more than you borrowed and it's going to keep you in bondage for, you know, five years and, you know, it's going to just lead to more debt and it's going to put you, you know, all that kind of stuff, that's all hidden. And we have to be careful when we are presenting Christ that we present God's love, but we also present his holiness, that we present his gift of eternal life, but also what it cost him to provide that for us. 
Because a community that lives in the fear of the Lord will be characterized by his holiness. The last characterization, the fourth one, is that a community living in the fear of the Lord will be a multiplying community, a growing community. We see this in in Luke's context here in Acts, that many people, many men, many women, are choosing to believe in Christ and joining the church. The power of God draws them. The holiness produces fear. And so what we see is that because of that, the conversions, those who are joining the believers, they're true converts. They're true believers because they've weighed the cost of holiness. And that balance between the power of God and the holiness of God draws sincere believers. There's really no concept in Acts of a nominal believer. Someone who is, you know, part of the church, likes to hang out at Solomon's Colonnade with everybody else, you know, likes the people, kind of likes their song, singing and their music a little bit, but has never had an encounter with Jesus and has not been transformed and has not repented of their sin and been renewed. The fear of the Lord is a powerful purifier of the church. And if a community is living in this fear, its growth will be genuine and it will be sincere. So I want to draw this together now in a conclusion. Because when we get to applying the principles from this passage, there are certain things that we can do, but there are others that we can't do. And they're outside of our control. So on the one hand, we can choose for ourselves and maybe for our family to make meeting together a priority. And we can take care when we have an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody else that we share the whole gospel, his holiness as well as his love, the necessity of repentance as well as the blessing of forgiveness. But on the other hand, we can't fake the power of God. And we can't control the power of God. We also can't fake the fear of the Lord in our community. And remember what I've been sharing today is that these four things are a result of the fear of the Lord. So the the understanding of the importance of meeting together, the holiness of God, the power of God, and the growth of the community are results of the fear of the Lord. So maybe that's where we start. How do we grow in the fear of the Lord? Let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you remember praying that God would increase the fear of the Lord in your heart? That's not something that we often think to pray. But in the second chapter of Proverbs, Solomon gives some guidelines as to how someone who desires it can go after the fear of the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 2, starting with verse 1. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding... 
And if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. I'm not going to preach on this passage because it could probably take two or three sermons to work through it. But as it relates to the fear of the Lord, two things that we see here pulled out. One is the seeking and the asking. So the seeking is that we choose to desire it. And we choose to go after it. As, as Solomon writes here that we are turning our ear to wisdom, we're applying our heart to understanding, we're calling out for insight, and we cry aloud for understanding. I see in that a direct reference to prayer because who has insight who has understanding it's the lord if we're crying out for it we're crying out to him and that's why i said when was the last time you asked god to increase the fear of the lord in you maybe that's where we need to start that we make it a priority and a commitment to pray consistently asking the lord to increase the fear of the lord in us as individuals in our families and in our broader community as a church so that we will see some of the same results that Luke describes here. A, a, a burning desire to be together, uh, a community that's multiplying and growing, a community that's characterized by the holiness of God and by the power of God at work. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us and humbly and, and even in fear, Lord, we ask together that you would grow the fear of the Lord in us, in us as individuals and families and as this part of your body at Calvary International Church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.